We're in Beirut for a new episode of the Beirut Banyan, and we're joined by Sara Asif, a political commentator on all things Lebanese politics. We discuss accomplishments and failures since March 14, 2005. <laughs> This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatar. This is the Beirut Banyan. I don't really know you personally. I think I've I've heard your name. I've seen your name online, um, on social media, on previous occasions. I think even on TV. Maybe I'm dating ourselves now a bit, but going back in time. So you're familiar and um, you tweeted something that resonated with me and I wanted to pick your brain. I'm going to quote the tweet from now. March 14, 2005, the best cause, the worst politicians. And I think there's a lot to unpack in a very short tweet. I think it's become a challenge to defend March 14. And I say this among people that stood with the principles 16 years ago, March 14, 2005, let alone the opponents of March 14 from back then until today. Sure. I think the, it's become a daunting task to not let the narrative sort of uh, erode. And I, I feel this inside, and I'm going to ask you if you feel the same way, that it's a false, it's a false comparison between March 8 and March 14. Just like you cannot compare any two dates in Lebanese history, but those two in particular, I don't think they should be given the same weight. And I think over time, it should be easier to toss aside whatever principles existed on March 8, 2005. Yet, that seems to be the narrative that won. And I'll start there. 16 years after March 14, 2005, rather than celebrating that occasion, we're angry, we're frustrated, and we're venting. Do you think March 14 died? Not the group, not the alliance, I mean the spirit. Do you think that spirit died? Or do you think it lives on, regardless of whether or not the majority cares or doesn't, regardless of whether these supporters change their mind, regardless of where, where Lebanon is right now, do you think that it's still alive in some shape or form today? Yeah, it's a tough question. Actually, yes, I believe that anyone who was there on this day, on March 14, would never forget this day. And the spirit would always be there. But one thing is for sure, I mean, after March 14, there was something that was called the March 14 coalition, which included all the political parties of March 14. And I think this is, this, this, I mean, 
The fact that now when we say March 14, we mean the political parties of March 14, the failure is there. But if you look at the day, if you look at March 14 and the achievements of March 14, 2005, they're huge. I mean, we were able to get the Syrian army out of Lebanon. We were able to get an international tribunal for Lebanon for the first time. And this is not a detail because there's, there have been so many assassinations before and no one really knew who was behind them. So there were achievements. But of course, you know, now when you reflect back on all the dreams we had, it was not just having the Syrian army go out of Lebanon, it was much more. It was, it was more about a free Lebanon, a sovereign Lebanon, um, a happier Lebanon, a, a more uh, liberal Lebanon, um, um, a more successful Lebanon, uh, a different way of life. And this, we were not able to reach. And I believe, you know, when I tweeted, the best cause, the worst politicians, because I believe March 14 did not end by mistake. It was really, um, you know, it was killed. It was killed first by March 8th and mainly by Hezbollah when we say March 8th, literally killed, you know, because they killed a lot of people. They killed all the people who really had vision and who really had a strategy inside March 14. And they always knew who to, who to kill and who to keep. They kept the people that, um, um, that they knew were um, more prone to, you know, go into um, um, a lot of... Uh... No, I'll actually, you know what? I'll gladly interrupt here because what you're saying about violent ending to that movement, I wholeheartedly subscribe to that. And that the targeted individuals we're really trying to push the agenda of March 14th forward. Anyone that kind of accepted a fait accompli, which is that the principles will not take hold, they're still around. And I think that's what you're saying. In other words, if the spirit, exactly. yeah, if the spirit ever existed, it's those that championed it that are dead. Not exactly. The it's right. the people who really thought about, uh, about March 14 succeeding, not about them succeeding or about their political party succeeding. Those people were the people that were killed. And this is, this is the main problem. I mean, when you look how they chose their victims, you understand that it was a, a systematic decision to kill March 14. And I think the problem is that March 14 politicians never realized that. And I will tell you, for example, that for me, when they killed Muhammad Shatah, my problem was that future, they said, meaning killing the moderation. And Muhammad Shatah was not moderate. Muhammad Shatah was moderate, if you want to look at it from a religious perspective. But Muhammad Shatah was not moderate when you look at it from a political perspective. Muhammad Shatah was the strategic mind behind um, um, all the new ventures March 14 was going to go into. And so when they killed Muhammad Shatah, they stopped a path that was, that could, that could have made March 14 be much more um, um, powerful and much more successful and much more edgy. So this is why when I say they knew who to kill, I mean it, and when I when I say that March 14 politicians did it wrong, it's because first of all they never realized 
the talents that were killed inside March 14, and they never really tried to protect them. And I have a problem with that. So this is part of my problem with March 14 politicians. It's not my whole problem. I have a, a whole array of, problem with, of problems with them. But this is, this is major. Because, for example, I'm going to give you an example. When I saw Muhammad Shatah five days before he was killed, he came to the restaurant and he was in his car. He had one driver with him. Nobody got nothing. And I looked and I looked and I thought, my God, it would be so easy to kill this guy. And like five days later, he was killed. And for me, future movement should have known that, you know, and should have acted according, accordingly, and they didn't. So I have a problem with, with this part already before talking about all the political part and the concessions and um, um, all the concessions that they did. Sometimes they did them out of fear and sometimes they did them out of, you know, they, they just wanted to do their own personal, uh, um, <laughs> so I, I'll, I'll say a few things here. Um, I've done, before we started recording, I mentioned I, this will be the 250th episode I've done. I think in all the episodes I've recorded, I've never been with somebody who's so, so like blunt and straightforward and going to really personal territory very quickly. So when you, I mean, yeah. usually, usually this comes up at the end of the episode, you're bringing it up up front. So I didn't know what I'm getting myself into. Now I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'd, I'd like to pick your brain and potentially disagree from the beginning. And I say this as somebody, a fellow supporter of March 14. So not coming from the, not coming from the other side in terms of Syrian hegemony and Hezbollah's place in Lebanon. More in that, since you brought it up very quickly, uh, I'll, I will take issue. I don't think my father would have ever lived in a Lebanon where he had to be surrounded by bodyguards. And I don't think my father would have ever considered himself a future movement member. And I don't think he would have accepted future security. So that's my father. That's the man I know. That's the man that I had dinner with two nights before he died. He would have never accepted the kind of setup that you were describing, even if, even if that may have spared him other, other sort of maybe potential death threats, Maybe it would have made him uncomfortable, but I think the fact that he was standing his ground and pushing through with his agenda that you described, um, I think he was well aware that this was going all the way. And I, I, I hold that dear because I don't think, I don't know my father as a man who would take security with him. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned this because it reminds me of exactly who he was with his then they should have done, you know what? Then they should have done this his security without him even knowing. I'd like to disagree with you on these things. Uh, he was not a future movement member, so I want to clarify this. Yeah, and he no, would have. Yes, you know, but he was, but he was an advisor to Saad Hariri. Yeah, but he's. I I don't think he's the kind of advisor that you're describing. He would have not accepted that kind of terrain. He would have left. I don't think my father could have lived in a Beirut where he couldn't walk on the corniche or where he couldn't go to AUB, or even the, the, all the restaurants that I used to go with him, all the cafes that he was, of course, this was a, this was a risky endeavor, but I don't want to make it personal. Let's, let's move him aside for now. I, I, although, although I'm glad you're bringing him up, but I'll, I'll extrapolate from this. Okay. The, the strategic decisions that were made, not just by him, but let's say he's, he's one of the more important players in terms of the strategic vision of March 14. Years later, 
by 2013, we were already having the same conversations about the dwindling and the erosion of those of, of that moment, the spirit of March 14. And I want to ask you, going back 16 years, before we go to the present, my memory of March 14, 2005, is really the buildup to March 14, rather than that day in particular. So in other words, it's not the million or more than a million people that showed up in Martyrs Square and, and throughout Beirut. It's those little protests that were building up day in, day out, week, week by week, they were growing and growing. March 8 was really just that sort of first pushback, but then March 14 was almost like a culmination that exactly. enough people from all sides of Beirut showed up at once. Do you remember it that way oh, as well? Not only Beirut. Of course, of course, throughout the country. But, but do you remember it that way as well? That in other words, this was a month long process that sort of, that in a way exploded on March 14, 2005. Exactly. That's why, you know, I was telling you that anyone who lived this period, I mean, would never forget this period. And it will always be, well, this is why when we say, you know, is March 14 spirit gone? No, it's never gone. It can mm -hmm. never be gone for anyone who actually lived it. Because, yes, it started with the assassination of, of uh, uh, Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri, but then there was a buildup and the buildup was totally organic. And it started like with everyone just feeling that we need to do something, even when we didn't know what we wanted to do exactly. We just needed to be on the streets. We needed to do some things. We needed to shout something. And this is, the, of course, it culminated until March 8th. And I think because every Monday we used to, you know, take the street and yes. there used to come a lot of people, but never enough. In it. No one could have imagined what even March 14 leaders did not imagine what happened in March 14. Because I think, March 14 was a direct reaction to March 8th. The usual Mondays were a direct reaction of the assassination of Prime Minister uh, Rafiq Hariri, but also of uh, Michel Aoun being in exile, of Samir mm. Shaja being in prison, because you know you had all kinds of political parties who started to work their way inside Martyr Square and having their tents there and, and, and lobbying and trying to do something. And you had people just like, civil society activists, and you have people who were never activists, but everyone felt they needed to do something. But when March 8 happened, March 8 was a shock because by that time, everyone was pointing the finger at Syria. Mm -hmm. Everyone was deep down, not just deep down, like publicly saying it is Syria and we need to do something and we need to, you know, uh, 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 start like really uh, pushing for uh, 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 having the Syrian troops leave Lebanon and having the Syrian interference in general in all the political aspects of Lebanese uh, life uh, go, what happened in March 8 was like a slap on the face of Lebanese people, even people who were not like truly engaged in this whole, you know, February 14 till March 14 moment. Right. Because right. You, know, you had actually people in Lebanon who were willing to say thank you, Syria. After Syria had killed Rafi al-Hariri, because that was the narrative back then. So, um, and people really felt that they needed to react, Yani. This is where people, even people who were not engaged before, felt that we have to be on the street to show that, that this is not the majority. The majority of people 
in Lebanon are against the, prison, the presence of Syria uh, inside Lebanon. And that was like uh, uh, the, the real trigger that made March 14 so huge and so successful and so, you know, it was unpredictable. No one, no one ever believed that this would happen. What happened in March 14 was surreal for everyone, even for everyone who was underground organizing for a month. No one believed this would happen. And this is why, you know, now a lot of people say that March 14 versus March 8, it's, uh, it's very sectarian. No, it was not sectarian. It was never sectarian. People in March 14, when they went to the streets, no, was, no one was thinking Sunni, Shia, Christian, Druze. It was not that at all. It was really everyone who wanted Syria out went to the streets on March 14. And everyone who did not want Syria out went to the streets on March 8. And that's it. And it was never sectarian. Like they try to, uh, to uh, if you want, like the, the narrative they're trying to push now. And it's one of the narratives that, you know, eroded March 14. You know, I want to get into this. And I'm glad you mentioned this now. And before we get into the sectarianism, or let's say the lexicon that's being used now, going sort of revisionist almost, I remember the buildup to March 14 as leaderless. There, there were names associated, we, and some of them we know. I mean, Samir Asir was a prominent voice in the what would later become the March 14 protest, as was Gibran Twaini. So th there are names that we can sort of look back on. But as the protests were evolving and growing, I thought of it as a leaderless moment, that the, you didn't have the political groups that later became associated with March 14, even though some of their flags were being flown, even though some names were being shouted, and you're right, this is at a time Aoun is still in Paris and Jaja is in jail, those names were tossed, they, they were being spoken regularly. But those names aside, I didn't think of it as a political project. I really thought of it as a, Leban as a Lebanon that was waking up from occupation. And I'm wondering if that's the case, why was it so quick to turn into a sectarian story? Because it's not just that it started now. This is going back years ago. If not, maybe within a year after the March 14, 2005 protests, the sectarian lexicon was being used already. And it's not an accident. It's not an accident that March 8, 2005 was predominantly pro-Syrian political, political parties. And probably if we had to sort of do a sectarian analysis, it was probably predominantly Shia. Yeah. March 14 probably did not have a healthy representation of the Shia community. I'm talking about the protests, the actual numbers and protests. But I don't think that's enough to go down the sectarian road. Exactly. Now, I'm wondering if you can look back, and I know it's kind of looking back far now, but why is it that these things became sectarian so fast, as opposed to sort of removing ourselves from that usual nightmare and being able to extrapolate from that a, a new Lebanon that was being born? If you look at the, okay, I'm gonna give two examples and I'm gonna go back to March 14. I'm gonna say, if you look at the Syrian revolution because uh, March 15 is the you know the anniversary of the Syrian revolution. Right. So if yeah. you look at the revolution also it wasn't sectarian okay mm -hmm. but what happened is 
they directly were able to turn the narrative into this is Sunni people going to the ground and because they're Sunni, that means they're terrorists and that means they're fanatics and that means, and so they're going to the ground uh, because all they want is, you know, to, to uh, overpower Bashar al-Assad who's the Alawite and this is not true, but this is how they portrayed it on the spot because the, this is the best way to, you know, to uh, to directly create a rift inside a country, to make people afraid of sectarian tensions, and at the same time to retain your, your community, you know, uh, 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 to, to, to keep control over your community, you go directly and you start talking sectarian. If you look at, for example, October 17 revolution, same thing happened. People go, went down to the streets, not for political reasons, it was for mm. economical reasons, not even for political reasons. But what happened? Directly, the narrative went to this is a this is a, a revolution that is against Hezbollah, and this mm. is why you started seeing people going to the streets saying Shia, Shia, Shia. You know, so they were directly able to turn the narrative into uh, like it's it's like it's as if it was a sectarian revolution that is directly, you know. Uh, um, that is, I mean, that is there uh, uh, under the umbrella or, or under the cover of financial or economic uh, demands. But in fact, the demands are political and they're against Hezbollah. Why they did that? Because every time it's the same. They do that because this is the best way to retain your community, to keep it, to keep it like completely under your power. And because at the end of the day, whenever there's a revolution, the ideas of a revolution are always, you know, are always charming, are always, I want to say romantic even. I and mean, people want to be part of a revolution. People want to be part of change. And I mean, this they used the same thing with March 14. I mean, they started saying this is against the Shias. It was never against the Shias. That was not the point at that time. Aslan, people did not believe that Hezbollah killed Rafiq Hariri. It was at that time people believed that Syria killed Rafiq Hariri. So it was not even about the Shias, but that was the only way, again, for Hezbollah to keep their community just under their control. And um, um, now, if you want to talk about the political parties of March 14, and I mean, how would you link the political parties to the sectarian part? I truly believe that what was nice about March 14 is that it had, uh, it was able to provide an umbrella for people who were not Christian enough to be <laughs> with the Lebanese forces or Sunni enough to be within the future movement or Druze enough to be uh, with Walid Jumblad or Shia enough to be with March 8th. You had an umbrella for people who were just really people who who think in a non-sectarian way, in a non-sectarian way, and who could never be directly affiliated to any of the sectarian uh, political parties in Lebanon. March 14 was able to do that. And I think that was the danger of March 14 for Hezbollah. And this is why it was very important for them to break this. They, if Hezbollah, Hezbollah was never keen on, on, on for example, weakening, um, future movement as future movement or Lebanese forces as that. No, it was about killing the March 14 idea because March 14 was, uh, you know, it was a, a, a real non-sectarian political movement and it was able to, to, to gather a very wide area of people, very different kinds of people, people coming from very different areas, people coming from different religions, 
and you had Shias in March 14. I mean, the the, the Shia intelligent intelligentsia was all in in March 14. It was never in March 18. So you had at least a part of the Shia was March 14. So um, so. I believe that um, killing the idea of March 14 was much more important for Hezbollah than killing the political parties of March 14 or weakening the idea of March 14 was much more important than weakening the political parties of March 14 because that was the real threat for Hezbollah. And another thing I'd like to say is that although the political parties inside March 14 were, I mean, the traditional you know, sectarian parties, Future movement was they, you know, they were always Asan, If you look at the uh, at the advisors of of Saad Hariri, most of them are not even Sunnis. If you look at the speech, the political speech of uh, Lebanese forces, it was never a Christian speech like Aoun today. Although the Lebanese forces were supposed to be much more Christian, Christian, and I mean by Christian, I mean I mean the way they. They, uh, the way they communicate with, they, with their public should have been much more Christian than the free patriotic movement. But what happened is that when those political parties integrated into March 14, they became more, they became less sectarian and, and more liberal. And this is why you would see, for example, Sunni people like me who felt closer to Lebanese forces than to future movement, for example. And you'd see a lot of Christians who felt closer to Saad Hariri's perspective in general than to Samir Jaja's perspective. So we, you were able to have like a melting pot of, every, of, 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 different, uh, of different confessions, you know, uh, working together um, um, on the grounds, working together, like everything related to and not just political activism, but also thinking together about how they want a new Lebanon. And that was, I think, the idea of March 14 threatened Hezbollah. You know, I like that you're emphasizing something, which is that the parties themselves were never really a threat to Hezbollah. Mm. And I like that you're stating that up front, that a more structural opposition that is not the usual suspects, that's really just protesters with power, political power, challenging a sub-state militia that was highly dependent on the Syrian regime and trying to reestablish itself without Assad. I think you're, I, I like the way you're framing it. And let's go from there. It's not far after March 14 that suddenly there's a maybe a, a naive decision to have this kind of national unity, bring in the other side right away, uh, try to stabilize the situation rather than push forward, despite the cost. And it's, I mean, it's within months. I mean, that later that summer, you know, it's less than a season away and suddenly Lebanon is sort of back into this comfortable terrain. And I don't know and you can tell me if I'm if I'm getting this wrong. I, I don't remember this as a Hezbollah pressure campaign per se. I remember this as something coming within the leadership that would later emerge as a March 14 coalition, that this was a deliberate decision taken to maybe go into more local petty politics than a sort of national vision for the country. And I don't want to be too hard on all of these characters. I know now it's easy. Now it's easy 
the names that you just mentioned from Saad Hadidi to Samir Jaja, anyone can go on the street now, own all of the above. They can curse them night and day. Back then, there wasn't that kind of vengeance against these people. So I, I think it's important to, to state that the venom was not there the way it is now. But I don't remember this being a pressure campaign against the March 14 leadership. I remember this being get on out of Baabda. And therefore, a lot of maybe, maybe missteps were made very early on in trying to, trying to reclaim what you're describing, which is a real opposition to the Syrian hegemony and what we have now, proxy paralysis. Am I getting that right, the way I'm describing it, or do, do you see it otherwise? Okay, I'll tell you. There's one thing, there's, and it's not a detail, that um, between March 14 and between um, the actual elections that happened during that year, later that year, there was the assassination of Samir Asir. So let's start with that. Yes. And, yeah, so, and again, you know, when there are assassinations, it's a message. It's a message that we can still assassinate, mm. you know? And like we killed Rafiq Hariri, we can we kill Samir Asir and we can kill other people. So this is something to take into consideration. I mean, if you want to put yourself in the frame of mind, if you want that uh, March 14 leaders had at that time. Mm. So let's talk with that. Now, at that time, uh, uh, Samir Jaja were, was still in jail. So it was basically a decision that was taken by Walid Jumblot and by uh, Saad Hariri. Now, yes, I think there were two things. There was the assassination of Samir Asir, which definitely, I mean, mm, yeah, it created like a sense of fear, you know, uh, on one side. There was also the narrative of Hezbollah that was trying, you know, directly to make it as if there's a Sunni Shia tension. And this um, created a sense of fear at, you know, the team of Saad Saad Hari that time was not really the decision making, but it was more about people around him. So also they were afraid of this. And I think also, yes, I mean, the concept of Aoun coming back, you know, because there were talks back then that Aoun was coming, but within a kind of a deal that was done with the Syrian uh, um, regime, yes. So, you know, so it was, I mean, the Samir, assassin the Samir Asir assassination, the concept of having maybe some kind of tension between the Sunnis and the Shias, and also the, 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 the idea that, I mean, the information that March 14 leaders had about uh, Michel Aoun coming back within a deal with the Syrian regime, all this, I think, led to this, um, um, what they called at that time, Etifei al-Rubai. Yeah. Uh, exactly. But that was... Disappointment to all March 14 activists, and I'm gonna make a, a confession now. Um, I voted for Michelle Aoun at that time. Uh, so voted for him in what capacity? As parliament, as part of the elections, you were right. And I because I felt that we were in the streets, you know, on mm. March. I mean, it was for me. It was very simple. We went to the streets on March 14 because there was people. There were yeah, you, because Hezbollah went to the streets on March 8. So our reaction was to go to the streets. So how are we now making a deal with Hezbollah? But the whole idea was that we went on March 14 to say no to Hezbollah and to the ideas 
that Hezbollah wanted to, you know, to enforce at that at that time, which is thank you, Syria, and we wanted Syria to stay, etc. So why are you making a deal now with Hezbollah? And at the same time, when we were on the ground, you know, the future patriotic movement, were, uh, the, the free patriotic movement were with <laughs> That's, that's Lebanese uh, Freudian slip right there. <laughs> exactly. So they were with us, you know. I mean, they were with us on March 14. So for me, it was like evident. And if they were, if they were all going to be, you know, in a coalition, and Oman was going to be outside of this coalition, and their coalition was done with Hezbollah, then I'm going to vote for Oman. And this is what happened. This is why everyone. You know, I mean, this is why Oman became the number one Christian party in Lebanon because because. People voted for own because they felt that was the logical thing to do at that time. But I'm okay. I'm, you know what? You're touching on many things, and there are actually there's a number of things I want to get into. I I may jump forward a bit before going back in time again, because what you just described, that comfortable terrain, of sort of retaining a very limited amount of political space, for whether it's future. Hadidi and Hezbollah on the other side, willing to kind of negotiate and at times pressure Hadidi into that kind of negotiation. Yeah. I, I sense, and I'm jumping forward now, but I sense that there's something very familiar that's happening now, albeit sure. at, a, at, a very, at a very pathetic level where the country is collapsing at a time where everyone is sort of has lost any kind of hope in these in the whole crowd. Uh, I sense that this is a familiar pattern, and do you see it this way that there's echoes of that happening now? And it's not. I know everything has changed, and I know that the 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 political sort of dance has has changed dramatically. But that kind of go to the other side and try to strike strike a deal, and recalibrate and stabilize. I feel that this is happening once again. Yeah, it's dramatic. I mean, I think that um, over the years, because the first concession that was done with Hezbollah or kind of deal that was done with Hezbollah was more, um, I think there was, it was more naive than what is happening, than what happened later on over mm. the years. Mm. Because over the years, it became a very conscious decision. Mm -hmm. We want to be in power. The only way to be in power is for Hezbollah to accept that we be in power. This is why we're going to make a deal with Hezbollah to stay in power. It was, with time, it became that simple. The first, if you want, the first agreement they did with, with Hezbollah, it was, they still, and I can understand that, they still did not understand the extent of Hezbollah's power over the country. And it was more of, let's try, and at that time also, they did not know that Hezbollah actually killed Rafi al-Hariri, you know? So mm -hmm. the deal at that time, I could understand. And yet I told you, I voted for own because I felt that still it was not, you know, justified. But today, and not just today, I mean, over time, no, it became a very conscious decision. You know, the only way to be in power is for Hezbollah to accept that we be in power. That's it. And this is why we'll always have to make deals with Hezbollah. And this, I mean, this, this has been happening for years now. And this is why, I mean, this is what actually 
this is what actually I don't want to say killed the idea of March 14, but at least at least let's say killed uh, the idea of a March 14 coalition, not of March 14 as a date, but of or, or of March 14 revolution, but of a March 14 coalition. Because what happened is basically first out of fear, because we should never come in. Yani, to be fair, I mean. If you want, if you really want to be fair, you have to look at everything that happened after March 14. The number of, of politicians that were killed after March 14. I mean, I can understand that March 14 politicians actually felt threatened. Yani for them, if you want to make politics in Lebanon, we have to be on good terms with Hezbollah, or else we will actually be killed. You so know, they had this fear, if you want. I'm glad. For I'm glad. Me, yeah, sorry, sorry. Go ahead, please. Yeah, this is the first thing. But I want to say something here. I understand their fear. But for me, there is always a way if you want to do politics in Lebanon without having to uh, do so many concessions to Hezbollah. And mm. it is just accept not to be in power, accept to be the opposition. If you accept to be the opposition, then you can be a serious, a serious peaceful, uh, civil opposition against Hezbollah. And this is what they did not want to do. They wanted power. So they wanted, had they accepted not to be in power and to be the actual opposition, then they would have, able, they would have been able to actually fight Hezbollah. But they didn't do that. And this is why um, March 14 public was disappointed with March 14 leaders over time because they understood over time that those people want to be in power and they're willing to do anything to be in power. So yeah. even after I, even after they were sure that it's Hezbollah who killed Rafiq Hariri, even after March, uh, even after what happened during you know May 7 events, even after everything that happened, they still wanted to be in power and they, I mean, they did it through just making more and more concessions to Hezbollah. I'm glad that you're emphasizing two things here, the, the fear, the real fear. And I mean, it's, it's recent memory. You have MPs living in hotels, MPs sleeping in the Sarai, prime ministers mm -hmm. that were not moving out of real fear of repeated assassination. And that is true. And also something else, you, I mean, you, you mentioned it, and it's very important to mention that Samir Asir, that kind of assassination against a journalist and a historian, not a politician per se, not the way we understand them usually in Lebanon, a decent man, a very decent man who's killed in a car bombing, that I think you're right, that would send shivers down anyone's spine when they're standing for the principles Samir Asir stood for. And there's no mafioso. There's nothing. There's nothing thuggish about this man. He's a decent, uh, educated historian professor. So I, I, I completely relate to that. And also something else, that the public saw, that limited gains were preferable to the March 14 leadership rather than principles. Mm. And that that I think that eroded trust among many diehard supporters of the cause, not the parties. And let's go back a bit. Let's go, so maybe 2006, 2007, a lot of things happen. The July war, in a way, changes everything for Lebanon. But also that there's the sit-in, politics are paralyzed, downtown, you can't even, 
there's a point where you can't even cross downtown. And Solidaire and Martyr Square is sort of almost locked up for a year and a half. Yeah. And everything comes to a standstill. And 2008, May of 2008, there's real violence once again, because one or two people are fired or threatened with getting fired in the airport telecoms network under state control becomes a taboo and you have to you know, accept that Hezbollah is now dictating policies. Is it there in your opinion that the public began to reconsider? And what I mean by that is not necessarily the, not necessarily the, the core issues of March 14, but rather that the March 14 movement is not going to work, that this is not a way forward for Lebanon. I think um, what March 7, sorry, I think May 7, mm. 2008, was the last time March 14 tried to actually live by, you know, the, the, the slogans of March mm. 14, when you mm. say so, sovereignty, when you say freedom, because they tried to do something. And it was, I think, after the, after the assassination of Zubran Twaini. This is where they started really thinking about the airport and how we can, because, you know, he was killed right after coming back from, from Paris and, and all the information about him coming back was leaked from the airport. And this is what triggered the whole thing. But I think that at that time, no, people still believed in March 14 and in March 14 leaders. That was, but what happened afterwards the actual day, May 7, and what happened on May 7, this is what, um, this is what, the, this is not what disappointed the public of March 14, but this is what actually uh, broke March 14 leaders. Mm. Mm. They understood that there's nothing we can do. If we ever attempt to do anything, there's a militia that is ready, you know, to take over Beirut in one day. And this is not a detail. This, that, that was, huge and then they went to Doha and Doha was about a humiliation to you know to March 14 and yeah. Doha and the agreement of Doha is a humiliation to to March 14 it was I mean it's when you go after a war when you go the loser <laughs> the loser gets nothing and this is what happened in Doha you know <laughs> so but after that people still believed in March 14 because they felt in at least you know, they tried to do something. They failed because there's a there's a there's an armed party, you know, facing them. But at least they tried to do something. And this is why in 2009 elections, March 14 won again. You know, people gave them their votes. People right. still believed yes. on March 2009. It was after that, and after 2009 elections, when people voted. They voted literally, and this campaign was literally against Hezbollah. And March 14 campaign was about a way of life. And do you want this lifestyle? And you will lifestyle the lifestyle of Hezbollah, a lifestyle where you would have wars, you know, unexpected wars happening that it's not any that were decided by a, by a militia, not even by the government. Do you want this kind of life, or do you want, you know, a, 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 a more prosperous lifestyle? And that was, I mean, the, the uh, 2009 elections were based on an anti-Hezbollah campaign. And then right after, and after March 14 won, they went again and they did a deal with Hezbollah and they did a national unity government. This is where people started to really, you know, feel, 
يعني we gave you our votes two times in a row and every time I mean you do concessions again you do these with Hezbollah and you know and nothing's going to change if you go on this way and it's very important to know that people Lebanese people are not stupid people knew that yeah, inside March 14 there was corruption but they were okay with that I knew for example I'm going to talk about myself I knew that there was corruption inside March 14 parties, but I didn't care because, you know, the fight for sovereignty, the, f- the fight for freedom was more a priority for me. So I was like, fine, you know, you know, a bit of corruption here and there, and you know, everyone, you know, I mean, and this is Lebanon. I'm fine with that as long as at least, you know, they stand strong on everything related to sovereignty and everything related to, you know, um, actually being, um, um, working seriously on disempowering Hezbollah, but they did not do that. When people realized that um, at some point, all what March 14 uh, uh, leaders cared about was power, this is where people started like to really flip. You know, it's it's quite nice that you're admitting these things. And I've never really thought through them properly, but I think what you just said about seeing things that you you're not comfortable with it could be low level corruption it could be medium level it could be things that we unfortunately got used to in lebanon and now we talk about day in and day out but i think that's what drove me away from any party in this country mm. so i remember vividly now march 14 the principles matter to me not the parties even the parties that you could sympathize with to a point i think uh You're absolutely right. By 2009, let alone 2016, which was almost like post-mortem at that point. But 2009, yeah, yeah, I I think I I see it the same way, that it became became too obvious that you can vote the same crowd in over and over and you're going to get worse and worse results. But what do you point, if you can, point to a reason why these groups were unable to see principle as important. Is it because we offered them that chance too many times? Or or is it really because at the end of the day, Hezbollah dictates exactly who sticks around and they literally eliminate the the threats to their proxy state? Because I think a lot of us in a way were hoping and yearning for many things to work out for this country once the Syrians left. And no one, I think, in March 2005 would have ever expected this to happen 16 years later, where we are. I think that um, Hezbollah was backed by Iran uh, while at some point, I mean, there came a point where March 14, I mean, March 8 was backed by Iran and Mm. March 14 at some point was not anymore backed by anyone. And March 14 leaders felt that during May 7 events. This is where they understood that they were in a way alone. This is one thing that you have to keep mm-hmm. in mind. There was mm-hmm. also another thing, the scene scene, if you remember. Of course. And it was yeah. the attempt of Saudi Arabia, yes. you know, to try and um, to try and like give incentive for Bashar al-Assad to come closer to you know, the Arab uh, world instead of moving even more closer to Iran. This, so is, there when, was this, this is when Hariri goes on the apology tour. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Hariri paid the price of this. And it was, to be fair, 
that was not his decision, you know, he had to do it. So also, I think what happened is uh, Hezbollah had like a long-term strategy put by Iran, while March 14 did not have uh, like a proper long-term strategy and they, they didn't have a, a, a real strong backup, international backup and even regional backup at some point. And this also like weakened them. This is on one side. Another thing is, and I always tell this, you know, to people who say, because, you know, there are slogans like, yes, and I always yes. say, yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, both of them are responsible for the corruption. Most of them are responsible for the monetary and the financial and the, the crisis that we're having now. But, I mean, there's a party that actually kills and there's a party that gets killed and you cannot compare both sides when you cannot compare both parties it's not the same when you kill it's different than when you're the victim and for me and for many people it was like despite of all of March 14 flaws we would always I mean I, I ethically you cannot but side with the victim you cannot side with the actual you know aggressor you cannot, and you cannot compare them because come in when you're being killed, you know, and if you take, for example, uh, 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 if you take, for example, let's take Saad Hariri, when your father gets killed and then your advisor gets killed and then the person who handles your security gets killed and then come in, at some point you really feel and know you're cornered, you really feel and know, you have to decide, you know, either you leave this country or you stay out of power or you just gave in and start doing even more concessions. Now he chose to do more concessions. This is where, I mean, he lost it all. Because like you're saying now, he lost his credibility. The, 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 again, his community does not anymore believe in, 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 uh, in, in him as a leader. Uh, he's still, you know, winning elections relatively just because there hasn't been a serious alternative, but with time there will be. Um, I think he took the wrong decision, but the idea is, you know, you cannot compare someone who can just, you know, cold-bloodedly cold plan and kill with someone who, you know, gets unexpectedly uh, 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 you know, killed. It's not the same. So you, we're not comparing Apple to Apple when we compare March 14 and March 8. Uh, this is something that we always need to keep in mind just for the sake of fairness. But yes, I go back to my idea. I mean, it would have been much easier for March 14 to fight Hezbollah had they accepted to stay out of power. I think the problem started with, I mean, with Walid Jumblat, the first, uh, who, who was considered to be at some point the leader of March 14, and who caved in, you know, after the assassinations and after March, uh, May 8th, and after he felt that uh, there was no international, proper international backup. And then Saad Hariri decided that I want to be in power, I want to be a prime minister no matter what. So. I'll go and make a deal with Hezbollah. And then Samir Jaja became alone, you know, in March 14, there was no one anymore. And at the end, he also made a pact with the devil, you know, and this is how March 14 like disintegrated completely. But um, I don't think that you know, if Hezbollah wasn't armed, we wouldn't have been there now, you know? They could have, they would have had a chance to actually fight and to actually stand their ground. They couldn't do that when someone was armed and willing to kill and willing to invade Beirut in two hours and willing to kill, you know, 
any brain inside this coalition. You, you know, it's almost, it's, 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 it almost makes sense that a, a massive assassination 16 years ago that kills Rafiq Hariri, let alone the earlier attempted assassinations at Marwan Hamidi and others, but that Rafiq Hariri's assassination is what causes this moment in time where you have enough Lebanese showing up on the street demanding their state, demanding their independence once more, and that it's multiple assassinations later that March 14 dies. So it's almost like uh, what brought, what gave it its birth also ended it, killed it. And yeah, it's ironic. Yeah, and, and uh, a population will eventually move on. When they see, I think when they sense that it's personal and petty politics that are being negotiated rather than principles. And by principles, I, I extend what you're saying and I agree with you that yeah, principles would include being a noble opposition, being a noble opposition that is saying the right things and and trying at least, maybe doesn't gain political power, but at least stood on the right side rather than dance with the devil and collapse with with the country. I, yeah, it was not just uh, it was not about just about standing on the right side. It was also about weakening Hezbollah because if you leave Hezbollah to to you know to fully take power, look what's happening now in the government. This is a government that was formed by March eight. I mean, everyone inside this government is March eight. Look where we are now. So the idea is leave Hezbollah, empower, you know, let them be in power, and let's see what they can do accept to be the opposition for a period of time, let them do what they want to do. And they will, you know, they, they're, 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 um, um, they cannot actually, they cannot uh, actually um, um, manage the country. They cannot manage any country. So the idea is let them, let them be in power. But if every time they're going to be, if, if every time a government is formed, you want to be prime minister, then yes, of course, you have to do whatever own wants and whatever Hezbollah wants. And this is what's happening now. And at the end, if Saad Hariri wants to form a government today, there will be no way for him to form a government unless Hezbollah says okay right. on the ministers and the own says okay on the ministers. But why are you doing it? And he's doing it again now. You know? Exactly. But Sada, I, I, let's assume both of us cannot enter his mind right now. We can't sort of jump into his brain and try to figure him out. Let's try to just understand what is that, what is the cause of that repeated decision over and over rather than taking the other side, which is opposition to discredit them? Is it, do you, would you, is it, is it pressure on him, geopolitical pressure? Is it pressure within his own, maybe his own? survivability, financial, or even for that matter that he's completely irrelevant in his mind unless he's in power? I mean, I, I wonder what, what could take somebody down the same path so many times to the point that we don't, we don't even, I don't think anyone is taking him seriously. He's not taking himself seriously. That's the problem with that Hariri. He, 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 he never, you know, took himself seriously. That's why no other party now is taking him seriously. The problem with Saad Hariri is what he, he believes, Saad Hariri now believes that ha he has no way to survive if he is not in power. This is the, his only, this is his, his raison d'etre. This is his reason to be, being in power, okay? And he never knew how to be in the opposition. He never knew how to do relevant opposition. Because even when, when um, if you remember, when his government was toppled uh, a few years back, 
and buy Nusalun and buy Hezbollah, and when they came up, you know, with the slogan "one way ticket," or "you're not coming back," etc. It was the perfect moment to actually, you know, have an opposition and let them rule and just look at them ruling because they can't rule. But he couldn't do that because this is not Saad Hariri. He's not used to being in the opposition. His team is not used for him to be in the opposition. They're not used to fight. They're not used to, uh, 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 to lobby. They're not used to, they just want everything the easy way. For them, the easy way is to be in power. This is where you know you have your network inside. This is where you get your you 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 get. Uh, in, this is where you can do all the wastas you want to do for your people. This is where you you know like you know all uh, uh, you have you're in power in your ministries. So you get more you get more uh, employees, pay more salaries, get more people to work for you, and this is how you know you uh, uh, this masalah, uh, you know. Uh, so this whole so it's really that he never i mean i don't know if he never but that in 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 the most of his political career the principles that represent march 14 did not line up with his with his own political career that he felt more comfortable sort of with with limited terrain and making these concessions that maybe kept him around kept him in in and kept him as a prime minister but gave the slowly, sort of illegitimately uh, enhanced Hezbollah's political status in the country. And I, I know that he's not the reason why Hezbollah is where it is right now, but he's definitely not the, he's not the force that prevented them. I think of him maybe as somebody who was not mm-hmm. willing to stand up. His and problem that, with yeah. is he's willing to do sacrifices and concessions and even when he doesn't get anything in return. I mean, the problem with him, and even if you want to do concessions, take something in return, what are you taking in return? Everything he did, for example, for Aon, you know, all the, all the, 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 at some point, everyone looked at him as a puppet, you know? I, I remember, I'm going to tell you something, it's, it's anecdotal, but I mean, it happened during March, uh, during October 17th revolution, the first two days. So people were in the streets and they were, they were you know, you, they were in front of the, of the Sarai, but they were shouting slogans against Subran Bastille. So I told them, but why are you shouting? You know, why are you slogans against Subran Bastille? You're in front of the Sarai, you should be talking to, you should be, you know, saying slogans, I mean, asking for the names of Saad Hariri, not of Subran Basile. And they told me, Mean Saad Hariri, he doesn't decide anything anyways, you know, he's not the decision maker. So but the perception of people was that it, it's, it's Subran uh, Basile who's, you know, ruling, not even Saad Hariri. And he, I mean, it's because of him that this perception happened. So you have a problem that at, you know, at the core of March 14, and, and if you want the official March 14 leader, was someone who I think never understood the essence of Lebanon, never understood the essence of March 14 slogans, and never understood the, es- the essence of, of, of leadership, you know? So there's a real problem here. And it's not his mistake. I mean, it's not his fault because, because he came so unexpectedly and on that, I mean, it was not his plan to become, you know, the, the, to become a political leader, but it just happened. So we can't blame him for that, but today, you know, the first five years you don't blame, but with time, you know, it's either you do it right, you get your act right, or just don't do it because you know you're weakening 
March 14, you're weakening your own political movement, you're, you're weakening your own community, too much, just too much. And if you look, for example, if I want to be objective, look at um, the constituency of Lebanese forces and the consi constituency of, of, uh, of uh, um, PSP, uh, they haven't lost their, their public. It's only Saad Hariri who lost his public. I mean, Lebanese forces are doing very well. They're, you know, look at the elections. They had eight, uh, they had, they had eight MPs, now they have 15. And next elections, they'll have more. Same for Walid Jumblat. The real one losing here is Saad Hariri. And I don't think he even realizes it. Let's go down this road. And maybe we can wrap it up with what you're, I think, a, a driving force that you've kind of, you've been, You've been describing it in a way, which is, I was on the streets on October 17, 18, 19, 20. I was in downtown in November. The slogans, the chants, the, the crowd that showed up, it did not remind me of March 14, but I think it was something that I saw myself in. It's mm. not March 14. It's not geopolitical. It's not sovereign. It's not... It's not about the port or the airport or our borders. It's about money. It's about poverty. It's about decency and dignity and, and really an end to corruption. And that stuff lines up with me. It completely lines up with me. And if anything, I think that's what drew me to Samir Asir as the most, maybe the no, most noble leader. And that in the in early stages of March 14, that I sensed he was, there on October 17 in spirit. And that's, that's the kind of crowd that I, that I link myself up with. And then 2021, the country's collapsing. It's easy, I think for me, and maybe you would share the sentiment, it's easy to put the, put a, it's easy to blame Hezbollah for many problems in this country. It's, e it's not easy, it's actually legitimate to blame them for the political violence. We have facts now to prove that the assassination, at least one, but multiple, uh, Hezbollah is involved in political crimes in this country. So that, that's there. And I don't think Lebanon can be rebuilt with a group like Hezbollah in its current capacity. I actually don't think a country can stand on its own two feet with this, with this setup. And then... Hariri and Basil bickering and Hezbollah is almost, you know, staying above it to a degree. I see Lebanon dying. Yeah. And I, I, I see the I see all of the principles of March 14, but that for that, every principle that's decent that has emerged in the last, maybe since the civil war ended, as dying as well. And I try not to stay too bleak, but I, I can't help but feel that this is maybe the end of the Lebanon that we were yearning for. 16 years ago, we're the same generation. Uh, we've spoken to the same people for many years. You knew my father personally. I mean, it's the same crowd. Do you have any maybe window of hope that this is not a fait accompli, that Lebanon is not going to completely collapse? Or do you see it as really that this is the reality, that every decent idea that we tried just did not work out? for all the reasons we talked about and more, it just did not stick. 
I've been in Lebanon for a long time, but for me, I never felt that uh, a day would come where I would actually think of leaving Lebanon for good. And it's the first time in my life where I truly think about leaving this country because I believe that everything I fought for, I failed and it's not gonna happen. And I feel that this country is really doomed because of many things, but mainly because of the you know sectarian, uh, uh, if you want the composition of, of, of this country. And um, for me, you know, I don't believe that we're here because of Hezbollah. I believe that we've reached this financial, this financial and economic collapse because of Killum, yani Killum. I believe in that. But I believe that we'll not, we will not be able to get out of the situation because of Hezbollah. Yani, for us, Anna, I, for example, let's start by, we toppled the government. It, it would have been very easy to remove the president and to remove the the. the the parliament, you know, if there was, there wasn't any, if Hezbollah wasn't there, it would have been easy after we toppled the government of, of Saad Hariri to remove Michel Aoun and then to go remove Nabi Birri. But there was Hezbollah on the ground with their snipers, you know, with their uh, uh, threats, with their, um, you know, with their terrorist approach to any kind of, of movement that is against their uh, 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 will. And this is where you have, a, we, we will always have this problem in Lebanon. We will never be able to move forward as long as we have this force facing us because this force was able to break the entire March 14 coalition, which had huge political parties. Which, which, which has a huge public, which, which won elections three, two, three times in a row. And yet they were able to break them. I keep they're able to break protesters in the streets. So I don't see, you know, I, I, I can't see a light at the end of the tunnel anymore. I believe that, you know, even if today Saad Hariri has all the goodwill in the world, and even if he really wants to have, you know, like a, a technocrat, independent government, he will not be able to do that to do it because they will not endorse a government that is not controlled by them. So we're gonna go back to having a government like the government we had before October 17. So what's really going to change? Right. And I mean, it's, there's a decision and it's clear, it's a global decision, it's an international committee decision that Lebanon, if Lebanon is moving to become more and more uh, like Iran and managed by Iran, we are not going to help Lebanon and that's that. So unless Hezbollah is willing to step aside, we're not talking here about the disarmament of Hezbollah because we know that this is not an issue that can be dealt with in Lebanon. I mean, it is something that needs a much bigger global deal. But at least if they're not willing to step aside for a while until like uh, reforms are made, then we will not be able to move for forward in any way. And it's clear that they're not willing to do that. I mean, until today, they are still killing voices uh, 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 that piss them off. You know, you know, Lukman Slim was killed just like one month ago. So, you know, what can we expect next? Even people who used to go to the streets, you know, most of the people stopped going to the streets, not because there was no leader for this opposition or because they, they saw no light at the end of the tunnel. It's because they, it, when they used to, at some point, when they used to go to the streets, 
tanks were being burned, uh, 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 snipers were there. I mean, I saw snipers wearing black and they were armed. I know, Akid, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to take the risk anymore. So this is what's happening now. So how can we expect change when you have a force that is armed facing you and no one is like, and you don't even have enough, I mean, uh, uh, um, political, uh, uh, um, I don't want to say political parties, but at least political forces helping those protesters on the streets. I mean, no one is really helping them. They're just being tagged as agents, being tagged as as the people who, you know, get their funding from the from the embassies, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, those people who are on the streets, no one is really uh, uh, helping them in their fight. So they will not be able to really make a difference. Now, let alone the fact that, you know, there's a whole problem inside the Thawra and inside the, you know, groups of the Thawra who are not Kamina being able to align on anything. And the, main, the most crucial thing they're not being able to align on is the issue of Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. Yani, the groups of the, of the, of the Thawra today, basically the, the, the issue they fight on, the, the, the most important issue they fight on is the concept of Hezbollah. And you know, some of them are with Hezbollah, some of them are against Hezbollah. So they're never able to come like with a, with a proper uh, discourse to, to, to the public. And this is why people feel and you know, this Torah has no, uh, 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 has no strong political uh, uh, cause that unites it. And it's not enough to be on the streets and say, we want the dollar to go down. This is not enough. I mean, you have to say how you want this to happen. And you know that everything, I mean, finance and, and, and monetary, financial and monetary policies are linked to politics and are linked to you know, political issues. So you have to, you know, you have to think of everything when you want to, when you want to propose something to the public, if you are the Thawra. And this Thawra is not being able to, to, to do that. And the real obstacle is Hezbollah again, you know? So whatever, whatever you try to do, there's Hezbollah. So either you want to accept to live in a country controlled with, by Hezbollah, or you just leave. For me, the only way to really be able to, you know, have uh, um, um, to form a political pressure against Hezbollah is for March 14 political parties. Some of them are corrupt, some of them are very disappointing, etc. But at least, you know, all of them to reunite at least against Hezbollah and to be able to really do some uh, international lobbying and to gather people around them and accept to be in the opposition and let Hezbollah and their allies rule this country and let's see where we go. But if we try to do what, again, what we've done before, like what Saad Hariri is doing now, then it's, I mean, we're gonna waste time again. So it's frustrating. And this is why for the first time in my life, yes, I, I think that I'm starting to believe that this country is really doomed and most probably, it makes more sense to leave. I mean, this country is forcing us to leave. And I'm gonna give just one more example. Look at the, at, at, I mean, August 4th explosion, uh, the Beirut port explosion. The Thawra was not able to unite and, and ask for an international investigation. Why? Because you have people inside the Thawra who are pro-Hezbollah who think that if you ask for, a, for an international investigation, it means that you are pro-America and it means that you are pro-Israel and it means that you are against Hezbollah. And it, 
So they were not able even to ask for, a, for, for an international uh, investigation. I, I, and look what happened after six months, we know nothing. I will add to that, that what, what you're describing about the geopolitical reality of this country, 31 years after the civil war ended, when you have a, an ammonium nitrate dump that is almost entirely sure now associated with the Syrian regime in some way, parked in Lebanon, parked in Beirut, parked in just, I mean, an explosion of this magnitude that with or without the investigation, I think it's a fait accompli in, in other ways, which is Lebanon is still paying the price for regional war and that it, it is scarring us. It is forcing us to run away from this country. It's killing us. And I think uh, I, I agree that uh, it's, we're entering now a very, very, very difficult chapter where Hezbollah is, and in many ways, the the Syrian regime that that ran this country, except maybe in its own capacity, one that doesn't care about public opinion, one that doesn't chase down people that stare at photos of Hassan Nasrallah the way we used to run away from pictures of Assad. We'd be afraid of looking at Assad too long. They don't go down that path. It's not it's not as loosely sort of. Um, it's not a regime, it's a proxy state. And it is so well entrenched that it's hard to imagine an uprising against Hezbollah. And I don't see that happening. I think uh, the uprising against Syria made sense. And you're right, the Syrian army did leave. But an uprising against Hezbollah, I just, I don't see it in the cards. Thank you for giving me an hour and a half of your time talking about something I know that means a lot to you. Um, I think in a way, you were able to touch on both the the joy that we both witnessed 16 years ago, the optimism once the Syrian army left that maybe the civil war was finally over, maybe an independent Lebanon was being born. Match that with the current reality, the downward the spiral, disillusionment with all that happened later. But still, I agree with you, the spirit is not dead. And that for better or worse, that day and the buildup to that day of March 14, 2005, I think it lives on. So I appreciate your time, Sada, and thank you for going down memory lane with me. And uh, if you do decide to leave this country, I unfortunately will have to put you now on a list of people that I admire who have left. And I think that list is too long. And I hope you, I hope you do stay, but of course that decision is entirely yours at the end. Regardless, thank you for sharing a lot of your thoughts today. And I, uh, I appreciate the blunt honesty and the direct English that you used. Don't worry about your English. You're just fine. <laughs> I, feel you, decision, I feel the decision to leave Lebanon is not even a decision anymore. You know, it's like we're being forced to leave. But I mean, I hope I won't have to leave. Anyways, it was a pleasure. And uh, I hope one day we'll meet in person, you know, not I just. So. On I hope Take so. Care. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening and watching. And a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>